Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producers, Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, why the Bureau of Prisons may be the unhappiest place in America. Plus, looking for a side hustle? The Army Reserve may be an option. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Postal Service says its operations are on the right track after years of pandemic-related challenges. But the American Postal Workers Union says the agency remains too short-staffed to meet service standards. APWU held protests in front of postal facilities and congressional offices last Friday to voice concerns about workforce challenges. For more on these staffing concerns, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with APWU National President Mark Dimenstein. The post office management did take some positive steps over the last few years. They increased the staffing in the processing side, but they have not taken sufficient steps, in our opinion, to increase the necessary staffing on what we call the retail and delivery side. And part of what's feeding that problem is there's massive turnover with the new hires in the post office. So they're constantly short of people because they, when people come in, they're facing a, a less than respectful work environment and people aren't staying. And so that then has this vicious cycle where then the customers are suffering because there's not enough workers to carry out the job. So yes, the post office needs to take more steps while we acknowledge and appreciate some of the steps that were taken. It's just not enough, and it needs to be fixed yesterday. I think what you pointed out just a moment ago is just how high the turnover rate is for the non-career workforce. Why do you think that is so high? I think there's a combination of reasons. The treatment when people come to work. The non-career postal job is not as good as a career job. And so if you come in and you don't have proper training and you're not treated with respect, The job's not easy. A lot of night work, a lot of weekend work, a lot of holiday work. People just aren't going to stay. There are other jobs out there. So some of it is a failure of the non-career model that came in in 2010, where most, and not in all the crafts, but in in most of the post office, the new hires are hired starting in a non-career status. So one is the job's not as good as it used to be. Two is, if you're not treated right, you're not going to hang in to get a career conversion, which we've done very well to give people opportunity to get career conversions, but it takes time. And again, if you're treated with less than respect, why stay? So if you put all of those together, you have very high turnover, and that high turnover almost immediately and constantly translates into short staffing, which goes right back, in many cases, substandard service to the people of the country. We're, of course, talking at a time when the USPS is celebrating the two-year anniversary of the 10-year Delivering for America plan. There's still, of course, a lot more to see under that plan. But what we've heard from the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, is that things are better than they were two years ago. Now, of course, things were very different under the height of the pandemic. I'm just kind of curious, from your perspective on things, is is the job getting done in spite of these workforce shortages? Are things as rosy as USPS is making them out to be? Things are not rosy. And all people have to do is talk to their friends, neighbors, and anybody they run into. And the public will tell us over and over that, yes, they love the post office. They need the post office. They want a thriving post office. But what the heck's going on? 
And that's not just one pocket of the country. It's just not one area. We hear these complaints and we hear these concerns all over the country. So whatever plans are in the 10-year plan, some we agree with, some we completely disagree with. The problems of service need to be fixed now. And that's our demand uh, today around the country is fix the problems by doing the right kind of hiring, fix the problems by addressing the workforce environment, fix the problems by uplifting the uh, way that people get hired at the post office, and let's move forward with the kind of post office we know we can be. We certainly have been in the past, and we need to be for the future. It seems like the problem is twofold, at least, or, or manifold here, that it is not just the issue of getting people in the door, but also making sure that they're trained efficiently and that they have a level of comfort with the job that they're being trained to do. Let's focus on that a little bit. Where is the training lacking here? And what are employees telling you as far as their training to do the job they've been hired to do? We're hearing reports from all over the country that people are just hired and thrown into a job. These jobs are not easy. For instance, a retail window clerk. It's a complicated job. You deal with all sorts of classifications of mail. You deal with a registry mail. You deal with certified mail. You deal with customs. There's a lot of training that goes into that. And the post office generally over the decades has cut down the training time. Coming into a processing plant, it isn't easy. There's all sorts of ways that the mail has to be sorted to get to the carrier, to get to the street in the right order. People just can't be thrown into these jobs. And if people don't feel like they have the support to do the job right, and if it's not being done right, then they're getting the hassle. But if they don't have the support to do it right, they're going to throw up their hands and leave. We even have career employees who just say, I've had enough. It's just not worth it. It's not worth putting up with this kind of harassment. It's not worth the lack of communication and training when changes are being made. And people are walking away. There's other opportunities there. And so training, from what we're hearing from our members around the country, the lack of good training and the lack of good supervision to communicate that training isn't there and often lacking. One thing we did hear recently, and I know we've discussed some of the transparency not happening under the 10-year plan. I know that APWU has looked for more answers with the uh, sorting and delivery centers that are cropping up mm-hmm. here. I did think it was noteworthy that USPS recently said that there would be no layoffs as a result of those SNDCs. Just in terms of that uh, announcement and in terms of the clarity that provides, you know, is that peace of mind for you and your members? I I think that that statement, that it will not lead to layoffs, does give some peace of mind, and we certainly welcome that. Having said that, their plans are going to cause some serious disruption to the people that we represent in the post office. There are going to be people moved to other installations, maybe to other jobs, maybe to other shifts. And we've had a lot of discussion with postal management to try to make sure that the impact is as small as possible and we'll have to see going forward. But the fact is that whenever you have changes like this, certainly on people's minds, first and foremost, on a lot of people's minds is going to be their job security and their future. So when a post office makes a statement like that, that is certainly helpful. That was Mark Dimenstein, national president of the American Postal Workers Union, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You can find more of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, looking for a side hustle? The Army Reserve may be an option. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom.
Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. A new campaign from the Army Reserve looks to reach those that want to serve, but also still strive toward their goals in other career fields. The launch coincides with the Reserve's 115th birthday and includes four films showing how the experience can complement other careers. I got the chance to speak with Major General Alex Fink, Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing, to ask him all about the It's Your Time campaign. If we could, if it's okay, Eric, why don't we just back up a step and talk about Be All You Can Be? That's really the sort of the umbrella launch, uh, which is the the new Army campaign, and that is an Army for all services, all, all components. That includes active duty, Army National Guard, and Army Reserve. And so, within a brand, you know, brand process or a brand launch, which we did back in March, there were four elements. One of those elements was called the brand architecture, and within a brand architecture. You, you try to make sense of how do you communicate the goodness of all of your sub-brands. And within the Army, one of our sub-brands would be the Army Reserve. You know, another one would be the Army National Guard. So still part of the BLU-Can-Be campaign, but It's Your Time is a specific campaign that is for Army Reserve. So it really helps to reveal the part-time path to service. In other words, you can be in the Army Reserve and still have a private sector career. You could still be going to school or whatever. So it's your time really kind of has two two sorts of things right to it, right? It's about time. First, as a reserve soldier, you do most of your duty outside of the traditional Monday through Friday uh, work week. Uh, you do it typically on weekends. So in a, in a way, you're literally doing your duty on your time, if you will, if you think about the weekends traditionally as your time. Then there's a second sort of element to this, and that is kind of what you were referring to earlier in that it's your time to level up. It's your time to make a difference. It's your time to make your mark. So it really sort of exists on two separate planes, one very specific about how you serve in the Army Reserve and how you can make the most out of your time doing your day job thing during the week. And on the weekends, when you have duty, doing the Army Reserve thing, then, you know, at a different level, it's more about that. It's, it's your opportunity to actually make a difference in the world. Yeah, you're coming at a time when workplace flexibility is front and center, uh, especially after the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I, I've been seeing the ads myself on social media and whatnot of, you know, you can serve your country, but also still maintain a, a career in whatever path you want to take. So where did this idea of maybe having the uh, Army Reserve as a, a, a side hustle in, in air quotes, uh, how did that come about? So that's, I love it that you just called it a side hustle because that's jokingly what we what we referred to it. Sometimes there's a there's not there's a how do I say this? Not everybody likes the idea of part time. Uh, it is truly part-time. You're not doing it full-time, so it's by definition part-time. But it, it, it sort of sometimes mitigates or, or minimizes the relevance or the importance of what you're doing. And because a lot of us do do it full-time, uh, we ha- you know, we're on active duty. And in fact, uh, you may not know this, Eric, but I'm an Army Reserve officer. So I spent a ma- majority of my career in a part-time or, as you said, side hustle role doing the Army Reserve thing on the side which is exactly how I got to where I am today. You know, I had a a day job, civilian career in marketing and strategy and sales. I had 
in my uh, Army Reserve career, had advanced through the ranks as an Army logistician. And when the Army needed a senior military officer, senior Army officer to run marketing, who knew something about marketing, I was able to just very naturally step into this role to lead the Army's Army Enterprise Marketing Office because, quite frankly, of the civilian acquired skills uh, that I've that I've garnered over the last 20, 30 years of my private sector career. Yeah. And you use yourself as as an example, and it's a good segue for my next question, which is in talking to current reserve members, is that what you've noticed that you see all these different kinds of careers and they talked about how, you know, this is kind of their, their second job and they, it's a chance to serve and whatnot. But is that what you all found in surveying the reserve members that I'm sure you did for, you know, researching this campaign? Yeah, you know, I think a, a lot of folks, people join the Army and to include the Army Reserve for a variety of different reasons. And so, you know, what the campaign is really trying to do is capture as many of those relevant reasons as possible. We're not, we don't want to necessarily say you should join for this reason or for that reason. We really want to try to keep that up to up to the prospect. So some people will join and we try to we try to bring this out in the campaign for certain types of skill sets that they can acquire. Think about those as very tangible type of benefits. Uh, Others will want to join because it's part of a group, a part of a group that I can be part of that makes me different, you know, than just maybe my my civilian workday. So we think about that as that community aspect. Some of it is, as we started out, just literally a passion, a passion to do something in terms of making a difference in the world. I did it particularly because I quite frankly, in a somewhat sometimes intense civilian job, I needed I needed to do something different, completely different than what I was doing during the week on the weekends, just for my own mental health. I was able to disengage from my day job. I got to do something that was cool. I got to be around soldiers. I got the opportunity to have unique leadership experiences and, and do all the things that soldiers get to do. And I and then I could go back to my day job, you know, on Monday morning. So uh, it was a, it was just sort of that opportunity just to do something different, to sort of break away from the routine that I had in my day job. We're speaking with Major General Alex Fink, Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. And if I could just get a little behind the scenes action and on a day when, you know, we we're hearing about a uh, writer strike on the uh, TV side of things, uh, when it, these are, you know, four ads. And when it comes to these commercials, I just am curious about the writing process, what the writer's room looks like uh, when you all are writing up these recruitment campaigns. Yeah, great question, Eric. You know, this is sometimes the, you know, a little a look under under the hood of how you develop ads. And I think it's important for people to, you know, people don't necessarily appreciate this or, or, or understand it, nor, nor do they need to, or should they, about the creative process. But we always start with a business problem. What's the business problem that we're trying to address? We don't start out with throwing ideas about commercials against the wall. We start out with a business problem. And the reserves it's kind of a relevancy issue, the Army Reserve. People just, it, they don't exactly know where to place that when they think about it a, a relative to other options for their time. And so that's kind of the challenge, right? It's just kind of irrelevant in a sense. And so we have to figure out how to make it relevant. That becomes our business challenge. And then it's really, okay, creatively, how can we do that? And we don't, we don't go to the writing room. We don't start looking at execution until we've really developed a creative strategy. What's our way in? And we'll usually come up with two or three ways in about how to make this a more relevant 
type of, of option for youth to think about how they would use their extra time. And then when we finally get there, we, we look at, okay, we've got two or three ways in that we really like. Now let's, let's let the writers start doing some of their magic and see what, see how we can bring this to life. And we'll write a whole bunch of scripts. I mean, we, we, you know, we landed on four. I, I don't exactly recall the number we had, but it wouldn't be surprising me if we didn't have 20 or 30 scripts out there at one time. And, and all of them start out pretty rough. And then just through the process, we refine them. Sometimes we take parts of one and just, just as, as any other writing process and figure out what we really like. And then we, um, when we go to our leadership and, and uh, make sure they're cool with it. And then we bring it to life. And bringing it back to you, you talked a little bit about your career path, and it is coming to an end now with the Army in your current role. Um, I'm just curious about your thoughts on the future of, of uh, Army marketing and where things started when you first got in there and now where you see things are as you're leaving the post that you're in now. Yeah, uh, thank you for asking that question, Eric. You know, uh, so I was I had this phenomenal opportunity in the United States Army because I was an Army Reserve officer to serve at a level that I could have never planned. And so I was asked, and I'll put asked in air quotes there, not really asked, but uh, brought on active duty as a two-star, as a major general, to to not just lead this organization, but to build it and really try to understand what does a modern marketing organization, what should it look like? I uh, had great support from my supervisors at the Pentagon. I report pretty much straight to the top. And so brought a lot of great support from, from the folks within the Army leadership. We did a pretty significant assessment as to where we are relative to what a modern marketing organization should be. And we spent about that first two years, what I call catching up. A lot of work we needed to do, particularly in our data infrastructure systems and our market research foundation, really understanding prospects. So that was catching up. That was sort of phase one. As I think about phase two, that's the launch of Be All You Can Be, and then all of the subordinate campaigns that will rest underneath that to include It's Your Time for the Army Reserve. And I call that world-class. Uh, we're doing world-class stuff. And then phase three is really going to be taking the lead. And we've got a phenomenal innovation process. We're really looking at cutting-edge ways to connect with our audience uh, outside of maybe traditional types of media that you think about. I will probably always do some of that traditional media. But we're looking at a whole bunch of different different ways to kind of cut through I call that taking the lead or phase three. And uh, my successor will have the opportunity to hopefully execute, plan and execute phase three. Major General Alex Fink is chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, a federal court reaffirms the government should look for commercial products before going custom. But first, why the Bureau of Prisons may be the unhappiest place in America. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Bureau of Prisons, an agency of the Justice Department, made two highly visible lists within a couple of weeks. It placed at the very bottom of the list of best places to work in the federal government, meaning its employees rank it as the worst place. And it joined the three dozen other programs on the Government Accountability Office's high risk list. 
For why it made the high-risk list, we turn to the GAO's Director for Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Greta Goodwin, who spoke to Federal News Network's Tom Temin. And when we last spoke, we discussed the Bureau of Prisons' issue with preventing recidivism and operating that program, which is something that Congress mandated them to do. But now we learn the management problems are much more widespread. What got them on the list this year? So back in March of 2021, we identified the management of the federal prison system as an emerging issue for our high-risk list. And that means that it requires close attention. So we did that for three reasons. The first reason is we had some concerns about the management of staff and resources. BOP continues to face challenges managing their staff and resources. For example, in terms of their staff, they have had staffing challenges over the years, and that means they've had to either have their correctional officers do overtime or augment. And so that has the potential to put prisoner safety and staff safety at risk. So management of their staff and resources was one of the reasons. A second reason that we listed BOP on the high-risk list is because we've seen and observed that they've had some challenges also planning for new programs or initiatives that might help people who are incarcerated prepare for a successful return to the community. And so we also have provided, you know, we did a report last year looking at how well BOP was helping inmates with getting ID documents when they are returning to the community. And as you know, you need an ID to get a job, you need an ID to run an apartment. So these programs or initiatives that would help a person who's incarcerated successfully return to the community, over the years, we've noticed that BOP has struggled with that. We've also reported on BOP has had some challenges monitoring and evaluating the programs that they are offering people who are incarcerated. And so we've had some concerns about, you know, the spending around that. And in terms of what programs that might be made available, like there are a lot of recidivism reduction programs that just haven't been evaluated, that haven't been monitored. So BOP doesn't really have a good sense for how effective they are. Right. And I think the first two might be related, the correctional officer overtime, the staffing problems, and the documenting and helping people get out of prison and have good programs while they are there to rehabilitate them. Because if the staff is short, there's a greater chance of violence and unrest in prisons. And when that occurs, people kind of get knocked down a peg in the security point and they get further from rehabilitation and release and so on. Yeah. And so it builds on itself. And so when we added the um, management of the federal prison system to the high-risk list, we're also asking that BOP focus its attention on the root causes of these matters. Over the years, we've made a number of recommendations. We still have more than 20 that are outstanding. And so we're asking that BOP turn its attention to these issues. As I spoke last week with Mr. Dodaro, Gene Dodaro, the comptroller, about, in general, the high-risk list, we agreed that there are two issues here. One sometimes is simply money. Do agencies have what they need to to have the resources financially they need to get off the high-risk list or to improve things? And then there's the managerial skill and quality, which is not really necessarily a money issue. It seems like here both are at play because if you don't have enough staff and you don't pay them well and train them well, especially in something so difficult and potentially dangerous, life-threatening as being a prison guard, then you're never going to get anywhere. You know, BOP understands these issues. The Comptroller General has met with the BOP director, and she has voiced her commitment to addressing these issues. BOP, their budget is about $8.5 billion 
for this current fiscal year. And so when the director is doing her strategic planning, the sense is that she will, you know, make some decisions about where those monies go. We're speaking with Greta Goodwin. She's director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So there is management then agreement that things need to be fixed. I mean, what should be the top of the list of what they do immediately to start climbing out of the hole they're in? So when the BOP director is, you know, doing her strategic planning, she will make those decisions. But, you know, the three reasons why we are putting the management of the federal prison system on the high risk list, I would think that that's where she would start because this management, managing the staff and resources is really key. And as you know, BOP, just the staff in and of itself, BOP has also had six different directors over the past six years. Two of those directors have been acting. And so just management commitment and focus is going to be a real issue here. So our sense is that the BOP director is paying very close attention. And then, as I mentioned earlier, managing some of these rehabilitation programs, just trying to have a good sense for what is successful and what isn't, and focusing your attention and your resources on that. And then you have to monitor and evaluate these programs. We just found that that has not really been happening. And so the BOP doesn't have a good sense for which programs would actually lower the rates of recidivism. And so when you think about BOP is responsible for the care and custody of federal inmates, and part of that care and custody is helping people prepare for a successful return to the community. But if you don't have a good sense for whether these programs are working, that's going to be a major issue. Right. And again, that gets back to the staff on hand at an individual facility, because yes, you can't be naive to the type of population you're dealing with. And some of them are dangerous people. There might be a few people that are really irredeemable. But on the other hand, you can't have people that look at them as somehow less than human at the same time. I mean, it's a really tough role, I would think, to be able to work in a way that enhances their ability to be redeemed, to leave and be rehabilitated and not return. But at the same time, you've got to deal with a very tense, often dangerous situation in reality. You know, some of this speaks to the staff training, the amount of staff that you have on hand. When we did the report looking at BOP staffing challenges, we found that they were understaffed. And as you think about, you know, this current fiscal year, BOP's authorized staffing level is like 40,236. Their actual staffing level at this point in time, because we know that BOP is in a hiring position right now, they're at approximately 34,800,000 staff. So there's a five, a little over 5,000 gap. And so that just means you have fewer staff on hand to help deal with the population you have. And you have fewer staff on hand just to help ensure that these programs are moving as effectively and efficiently as possible. And what about the Justice Department headquarters itself? What's your sense of how much of a concern this is up at that level? So we know that the Department of Justice IG did list maintaining the secure, safe, and humane prison system as a top management challenge for DOJ. And so we know that there is attention from the bigger agency, the Department of Justice. We know that there is attention to these issues at the main office. I mean, in some sense, dealing with a prison population can really reflect the best and the worst of what a nation is capable of, because there are many agencies that deal with people at different levels and they have their vicissitudes. But when you're dealing with prisoners, then it's almost a paradox. You have to 
keep them in place. You've got to make sure they don't escape prison and don't commit violence and so forth while they are in prison or financial crimes. But at the same time, you have to help rehabilitate them as human beings. And I keep returning to that theme. But the extent to which we can do that successfully as a nation kind of reflects national values. Well, the reason BOP is here is for the care and custody of people who are incarcerated. And part of their mission, part of their role is to help reduce the rates of recidivism, help prepare people for a successful return to the community. How that is done, that will be left up to the management of the federal prison system. But we know that there is a commitment to ensuring that things are done properly, things are done effectively. We know that there's a commitment to ensuring that you know anyone who enters the federal prison system is evaluated once they come in to determine what their risk of recidivism might be. They're evaluated once they, when they enter to determine what their needs are. So BOP is responsible for providing these programs, whether they be literacy programs, whether they be anger management programs, BOP is responsible for providing that because that helps individuals return safely to the community. Greta Goodwin is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to the list at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, a federal court reaffirms the government should look for commercial products before going custom. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency picked a systems integrator for a computer vision project. The integrator, CACI, started to develop a proprietary function that a commercial company already offered. You can guess what happened. Everyone ended up in court. For the details on a case underscoring the legal preference for commercial products, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to Haynes Boone's procurement attorney, Zach Prince. All right, Zach, walk us through this because it has to do with market research. It has to do with commercial preference and all of these kind of longstanding issues. Sure, Tom. It is complicated. So by statute, Congress has established a firm preference for commercial products and services. Agency heads are required when structuring procurements to set requirements so that they can have commercial products and services solutions, or at least non-developmental solutions. And it goes further to require the agencies to instruct primes going further down to the supply chain to incorporate commercial products and services as frequently as possible. In this case, NGA failed to do that. What was NGA trying to acquire here? So the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or the MAPS agency, as a lot of folks still know them as, obtains and analyzes a huge volume of images and other geospatial information. And then they use analytical tools to process that volume of data in order to obtain useful intelligence. And to do that, they use a system they call computer vision, which is a form of AI that trains and uses computers to interpret the visual world. So in this case... NGA was issuing a solicitation for an IDIQ contract, reference a Sapphire. It had two components. It had a huge data repository to store and disseminate the geospatial intelligence and a solution to integrate a computer vision system to enhance the agency's ability to produce, review, and classify the intelligence from all these images. So they needed the application and the storage as one deal. That's right. And they didn't want to bifurcate this into storage and the actual system. 
So they chose CACI, which proved it could do both, correct? That's right. CACI was able to do both. Technically, the solicitation allowed for either development or provision of an existing vision system. Uh, CACI chose the development option. All right. So that sounds like custom development. Then there is this company called Percipient, which said, well, it could do the image capture part of it and the image processing part of it, but not the storage. So how did they get to be a party to this whole acquisition snafu? So Percipient has a computer vision software called Mirage. It's an open architecture software that, in their view, would have fulfilled NGA's needs, which they told NGA about very early on. NGA told them to go talk to CACI, who at first said, sorry, it's too late. NGA said, wait, wait, maybe it's not too late. We're still evaluating whether we even need a development solution. Maybe we're just going to use our existing computer vision system. But ultimately, Percipient had to hear from CACI at a trade show that CACI had already been developing this new computer vision program. So NGA tried to stall them from filing a protest, told them to lay off the litigation, and we'll think about your software, but then told CACI to go ahead anyway and develop something that would do functionally the same thing. That in itself doesn't sound quite kosher to say, drop your lawsuit and we'll consider buying from you. Can an agency actually say that? Well, they, they, I mean, they did said say it, it, but are they allowed to say it? I guess I meant the court suggests that no, but the decision here is an, on a motion to dismiss. So we don't have anything on the merits yet. Well, let's but, back up a step. So percipient went to the court of federal claims after this incident. That's right. So NGA did some evaluation of Mirage, but it was clear to percipient that they weren't taking it seriously. They were evaluating it as a different type of software than it actually is. And from Percipient's logs of the use of Mirage, the agency really hadn't gone in and done anything with it. So once it became clear that the agency was not going to be doing anything on its own to buy the software, they brought this protest. All right. We're speaking with Haynes Boone procurement attorney, Zach Prince. And what did the court say and decide? So as soon as the protest was filed, the agency and CACI moved to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction and for lack of standing. And on timeliness grounds, because remember, this is two years after the agency originally awarded the IDIQ to CACI, quite a while. And the court found that there was standing and there was jurisdiction because of the commercial item preference that's contained in statute. And this is really following on the heels of the Federal Circuit's Palantir decision from 2018, where they reprimanded the Army for failing to conduct market research into a commercial product that would have satisfied their needs Instead, the Army in that case went out and procured a developmental software. So in awarding the original contract to CACI, they weren't really buying the total solution that they had put in the solicitation either because CACI had to start coding this application, which might have existed commercially to begin with. So the, the solicitation permitted that as a solution, which is why the court said actually it wouldn't have been timely for percipient to protest the solicitation because the solicitation could have allowed for a commercial product Got as it. a solution. And so th there are some very complicated and interesting jurisdictional and timeliness issues here, which I'm not going to go too far down the law nerd angle, but it is a case really worth watching because commercial product providers frequently want their solutions to be part of a government procurement. They don't want a development solution but they also frequently can't provide the full gamut of services an agency needs. But that 
isn't enough to exclude them. The court here certainly considered the possibility that the agency might be required to direct CACI to include Mirage as the solution for the computer vision. But it hasn't made that decision yet. No, it hasn't. So the briefings on the merits are going to take some time. I would strongly suspect there'll be an appeal. So this will be something to watch for a while yet. And I guess maybe the other lesson here so far is that agencies should not take the requirement to do market research too lightly, especially in a burgeoning field with artificial intelligence and all kinds of imaging applications being developed. And the NGA itself is a agency always professing to want to use commercial imagery and commercial solutions. That's kind of one of their mantras. And so that early piece of the market research cannot be ignored or taken lightly. That's right. And I think a lot of agencies before 2018 were taking it fairly lightly because it didn't seem like there was any legal teeth to the commercial product preference. But the Federal Circuit was clear that, in fact, that statute creates an enforceable right. And the court here is just continuing on the heels of that decision. And there's also the issue that CACI is a known quantity. It's been around many, many, many years and has performed successfully for lots of agencies. I mean, it's not like they're a newcomer here. So that mitigates in favor of why the NGA would want to play it safe, maybe. Maybe, but anytime you're developing a software solution, it's going to be expensive and have risks. And certainly the agency knows that. It might be the case that Mirage doesn't do what the agency needs, but they still have to do that evaluation, which they still have failed to do. And also, the company did not protest to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, but rather to the Court of Federal Claims. Any significance there? So they couldn't have gone to the Armed Services Board because it's a bid protest. They might have gone to GAO, but because of GAO's strict timeliness rules, there's no question that this would have been untimely at GAO. Well, they had lawyers that knew what they were doing anyway in terms of the venue for a protest. That's sometimes as crucial as the merits, isn't it? It is. And the timeliness issues at the court are going to get very complicated, particularly in the heels of this decision, because the court here, it's commonly understood that at GAO, you have these very strict five, 10 day rules for when you can bring a protest. At the court, there's this equitable thing called latches that you can't bring a stale claim. But what that means has always been a little bit vague, but it's allowed flexibility. The court here said, actually, the concept of latches is inapplicable in a bid protest based on a recent Supreme Court decision. I don't know about that holding. The Federal Circuit seems to have already rejected that holding in a case last year. So we'll see where that goes. But that would totally upset some of the basic rules about bid protests. That's Zach Prince, a partner at the law firm Haynes Boone, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you go with your commercial device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Department of Transportation is making cybersecurity a major factor in U.S. infrastructure projects. DOT is now embedding cybersecurity requirements and guidance in the grants it distributes to state and local governments. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday sat down with DOT Chief Information Officer Cordell Schachter. DOT proposed an approach for cybersecurity in bipartisan infrastructure law grants to the NSC and in 
intergovernmental policy committee that, and working group that they pulled together. Through various rounds of discussions and proposals and counterproposals, we uh, finally proposed using existing uh, TSA requirements and guidelines. And basically our approach has four components. Number one, to designate a cybersecurity point of contact. Number two, to create a cybersecurity incident reporting plan. Number three, create a cybersecurity incident response plan. And I'll come back and explain the difference. And four, conduct a self-assessment. Those four steps exist already in guidance and directives that TSA has given to various operators in various sectors um, throughout the country. So it shouldn't be new to anyone. It's been discussed for a long time. And it's also seen as something that's achievable even for uh, potential grantees who don't have very advanced cybersecurity practices. And remember, we think of cybersecurity around our overall goal of improving resilience from all hazards in our grant making, including, say, climate. But cybersecurity in particular, we would like infrastructure that's either modernized or newly built to be secure by design so that the cybersecurity aspect of it is built in and not added later as we might have to do to legacy technology. So the cybersecurity point of contact is really identifying a single person in the organization who agrees to take responsibility for cybersecurity. They may not even be the cybersecurity expert. They may may need um, other governmental staff or even um, private consultant support to perform that role. But at least it's the one person who can be the point of contact for the federal government or for other entities that need to talk with them about cybersecurity matters. The cybersecurity reporting plan is is a lot less complicated than it sounds. It means if you think you have an incident, who are you going to call? Kind of the Ghostbusters question, right? So are you going to call the FBI? Are you going to call CISA? And, And the time to make that decision and maybe talk with them about who's the best person to call and even the best phone number to call on is before the incident occurs, right, when you're racing around with your hair on fire. So our guidance or requirement is to prepare that information in advance with the organizations that want to receive that call. The third is the cybersecurity response plan. So depending on the size of your enterprise and the number of systems, should that system be compromised or you're worried that it's compromised, what's the next thing you'll do? Is it something that you can just isolate? contain it because it's not mission critical, it's not life or death, or is it something that you can't shut off so that you need to have and be thinking about, you know, resilient backup systems. So it kind of gets the conversation started um, and will likely be what we call a a living document, a document that's going to be updated over time. And then the last and, and fourth thing we're asking operators to do or potential grantees to do is to perform a self-assessment. And in that self-assessment, you identify your strengths and weaknesses and hopefully invest into the weaknesses so that your cybersecurity practice improves. And already the the Federal uh, Transit Administration has posted on DOT's website 
a self-assessment template for transit operators. So it's great that they kind of moved out of the gate on this very quickly with some support um, from the um, consultant and not-for-profit um, community, including the Mineta Transportation Institute, and, and are on their way. And the assessment is something that's not necessarily simple to complete, and we understand that. And, and our expectation is that a grantee would complete this in two years. And we pick that span of time because the initial activity after being awarded a grant is to mobilize, is to get your plans um, finalized. And in those plans should be a recognition of cybersecurity. You're probably going to have to engage the private sector to help you build that infrastructure or modernize existing infrastructure. And as part of that mobilization, then we're hoping that your partners will help you to create that self-assessment based upon the plans uh, for modernization or to build new. Got it. All right. That's a great overview. And these requirements slash guidance, depending on the type of grant, can you kind of break down how that works? Some of these grants, these folks will have to do it in order to win. Others will just see this as guidance and it won't necessarily be a requirement. Yeah, the lion's share of the grant making under the bipartisan infrastructure law is formula grants, which means that the organizations, the state and local governments, tribal and territorial governments, if they qualify, has been predetermined. For those grantees, we will issue the the cybersecurity approach as guidance and and really support them in achieving it, but it's not a condition of, of receiving the grant. On the discretionary side, our intent is that to have the cybersecurity approach be part of the conditions that they need to satisfy to be awarded the money. But I want to stress, we deliberately chose non-onerous steps in our approach so that even an organization that is not very sophisticated from a cybersecurity perspective can achieve these goals. And the first thing that we do is we say, is there cybersecurity, potential cybersecurity risk in the infrastructure or in, in the subject of the grant? And an easy no answer, no cybersecurity risk, would be a grant to a planning organization for only creating a paper plan. Maybe it's a digital plan now. But, but there's very, very low, if any, risk there. So that grantee doesn't have to sweat the cybersecurity piece. For any infrastructure, it could be physical infrastructure, um, it could be vehicles, um, whatever it is, we will uh, do an evaluation of the project and determine if it has what we're calling elevated cybersecurity risk, then we would ask you to complete uh, the four components of the cybersecurity approach. Just the last thing on the grants, these requirements slash guidance are they being included in new requests for proposals today? Are they, is it still under development? Where, where is it kind of at an implementation? So it's our intent that it, a standard paragraph approved across the government, recognizing the, uh, the interest of DOT and DHS, would be submitted uh, with all of the notices of funding opportunities. 
If that had been missed in the past, then we're going to correct that going forward. That's Cordell Schachter, DOT's chief information officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. You can find more of Justin's reporting on this issue at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.